welcome to issue 13 of the Attention Span newsletter by me, Janan Marashligil. I'm a writer, literary translator, an artist, and a curator of cultural programs based in Amsterdam. Every other week, I take the time to reflect and offer a glimpse of how I see and feel the world through the lens of culture, art, translation, poetry, and literature. Each issue has a short essay or some thoughts, a nerdy look at translation, a page or two uh, from one of my notebooks, and a list of things to read, watch, or listen to. And for those of you who prefer the audio experience, I'm reading the newsletter to you. And I'm also inviting you to support my work, if you can, on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash span. And I'm really, really thankful for your presence and attention. The essay on politics and culture. It feels dishonest to title this essay on politics and culture, while the reality is beyond politics and culture. We are talking about colossal violence that has left many of us powerless. Maybe I wanted to ask, can culture stop violence? Wary even to put a question mark at the end of my sentence. As if I already knew the answer and feared it. I remember on 18 March 2006, prior to the premiere of Variations for Vibe, Strings and Piano by Steve Reich and Akram Khan in Köln, which I attended with a group of journalists, Reich said during the press conference that art had absolutely no power in stopping violence, that it never had. He gave Pablo Picasso's Guernica as an example, a topical, passionate and political work of art made in response to the 26 April 37 bombing of Guernica during the Spanish Civil War. The painting did not stop the bombs, Reich stated. Like a fact. He didn't seem disappointed by this reality. His acceptance of art's passive role in the face of violence made me wonder at the time. The painting may not have stopped the bombs, but it created awareness as it was seen the year it was made, at the heart of its urgency. Did that awareness stop the violence of war, though? And do we connect that past violence to our present time when we look at the painting now? Steve Reich is a highly celebrated composer, and I have admired his music for as long as I've been working in the arts and culture, a time spanning more than two decades. Only as I started researching for this essay did I learn about ethically problematic aspects in Reich's oeuvre concerning cultural appropriation. Following the resurfacing in 2020 of racist remarks Reich made in the 70s, Many people have been investigating the racial politics of the composer's canonic minimalist music, like Sumanth Gopinath, associate professor of music theory at the University of Minnesota, who has discussed in an episode of Will Robbins' Sound Expertise podcast the history of Reich's engagement with civil rights in works like Come Out, asking if the influence of African music on his compositions represent a form of cultural appropriation. I invite you to, the, to listen to the conversation for a nuanced take on arts and politics from this particular subject's point of view, and I will link to the episode in the show notes. 
Learning about Reich's uh, opaque political views on important questions such as race, while his work is influenced by the context of civil rights and racism, makes me question his statement about art in the face of violence even more today than I had 16 years ago. Does art become a shield of a politicality between the political reality in which it is created and a non-politicized imagination we all are supposed to have as artists. Even for artists who have inherited trauma and violence, like Reich himself, who is an American of Jewish descent. In different trains, Reich compares and contrasts his childhood memories of his train journeys between New York and California in 1939-1941 with the very different trains being used to transport contemporaneous European children to their death under Nazi rule. What are we protecting when we strip art of its politicalness? In the current context of Israel's genocidal retaliations to the horrific attacks perpetrated by Hamas on 7 October 2023, built on decades of occupation and violence, don't we all have the moral imperative to stop hiding behind art as depoliticized? In Enough with the solidarity statements, why art institutions should stop taking positions on geopolitical events they have nothing to do with, published on Artnet on 16 October 2023, Sascha Freudenheim shares his frustration in response to all the statements made by some art organizations about Israel and Palestine. I find the title of the piece a shameful example of clickbait and don't wish to engage with it. It also doesn't entirely reflect what uh, Freudenheim is trying to do in this piece. Instead, I'd like to dive into the reflection some of his points ignited in me and in relation to my own initial uh, query, can culture stop violence? Freudenheim speaks from his point of view as a PR expert, not a curator or someone artistically involved. So his urgency regarding the role of arts and culture in our societies may differ from mine. I disagree, for instance, that art space shouldn't state opinions on geopolitical questions. Not only the existence of art spaces is political, how they are funded, where they are, their history, etc. So is their curation and, in extent, the way they communicate with the world. No space can claim neutrality. That claim in itself is political. You may remember in issue 10 of this newsletter on curating literary programs, I had shared the book Culture Strike, Art and Museums in an Age of Protest by Laura uh, Rykovich, a former director of the Queen's Museum in New York, in which she shows how art museums arose as colonial institutions bearing an ideology of neutrality that masks their role in upholding capitalist values. And Rykovich suggests how museums can be reinvented to serve better public ends. And I will link again uh, to the book in the show notes. What I find valuable in Freudenheim's piece is his advice about what to do concretely as an art, art institution, which I found also contradicts his initial opening point that politics isn't the art world's business. My take is that he's speaking against the performative aspect of all the statements, especially the social media ones, which many times don't say much. 
If we take the murder of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter as an example, he makes a relevant point. Remember how the literary world and publishers had posted black squares all over social media condemning systemic racism, and when it came to translate the work of an African-American poet to Dutch, the publisher chose a famous white writer who wasn't even a translator. It took the voice of a Dutch black activist, Janice Deul, to call them out on their hypocrisy and start igniting change in the sector. And we're still not there yet when it comes to diversity in the literary field. Frodenheim's advice to combine a statement with a tangible action particularly spoke to me. And I quote, It it does not have to be complicated, but it should also not be self-serving. Waiving admission fees for a day is self-serving. Offering an auditorium or gallery space to a local group that might want or need a place to gather and grieve is a gift. Noting your collection of Judaica or art by black artists is self-serving. Inviting a black or Jewish artist to give a talk about their work or their connection to the situation or their own related experiences can be a source of emotional sustenance and aid in communal grieving. In the Netherlands, where I'm based, but also in Germany, Belgium, France, the UK, all places where I share communities and follow the news closely, we are in urgent need of hearing a wide variety of Palestinian voices, especially in the face of the shameful and dangerous censorship currently being put in place in many organizations. Writer Adania Shibli's cancelled award ceremony at the Frankfurt Book Fair is one example. Art has forever been part of my life, and I have never looked at the world from any other perspective than in the presence of art, literature, film, poetry, of culture of any kind. Artists, writers, poets create and present their work in a context which is always political. Being able to write poetry about birds and flowers in a peaceful environment is political in itself, especially when that peace has been built on the back of others' suffering. Having privilege is political. Not politicizing a situation is a privilege which is deeply rooted in political context. Me writing this newsletter and sharing my photography and words with you is political, even if I wish I did not have to politicize my creative space. But I don't create in a vacuum. I'm part of this violent world. I vote, I spend money, I make money, I participate in cultural policy, in funding of cultural events and artists, I sit in the board of a writer's guild, I pay taxes, I have two passports, I write, I make art. My existence is set in a political world. My actions cannot exist outside this reality. While culture cannot stop violence in a direct way, the people and institutions creating the spaces for arts and culture to meet with the public can make sure our politicians know we all yearn for non-violence. Maybe that is why politicizing the arts is, for now, an urgency so that political discourses within culture can move beyond the performative. And maybe culture is the only space right now where the possibility to exist without being erased from history, is real. And even if that won't stop violence now, it may help us all get there. 
on translation. Last week I've participated in an online reading of Palestinian poetry organized by a dear friend based in Sweden. Next to me was another very dear friend of mine, a fellow literary translator and a poet. We sat in front of the screen with the poems we were going to read. We didn't know most of the faces who were appearing, one by one in the tiny rectangles of the video call. But we immediately felt home. Everyone read works by Palestinian writers in their Swedish translation. Even though my friend and I didn't understand a thing, we were deeply moved and felt each line deeply. My friend read Dutch translations she did herself, and I decided to read a poem by an American-Palestinian poet in its Turkish translation. Even though everyone could have understood the original English, I needed the emotion only Turkish could have given me at that moment while reading. This multilingual gathering is an example of how poetry in translation becomes a common space where we find one another, where language is not only about understanding, it is about feeling and finding solace in each other's warm voices. And now listening, watching, reading. Listen to London-based DJ and producer Nabiha Iqbal's music, her latest album Dreamer, Uh, for instance, or discover her musical finds in the radio show shows she hosts on NTS, like the latest episode from uh, 10 October, where she shares sounds she brought back from a recent trip to Lebanon, including Remote Control, a 1980s tune from Beirut by Teddy Lane, uh, music from the Bunny Tylers and Maya Yazbek. And for the lucky ones among us in Amsterdam, Nabiha will perform at the Melkweg on 22 November 2023, and I will of course show, uh, link to all these uh, in the show notes. Read the poem Fuck Your Lecture on Craft, My People Are Dying by Palestinian-American poet and reporter Noor Hindi, and also the poem I was referring to uh, in my translation bit. Here is also the Turkish translation, Kahrolsun İşbirlilik Ahkamınız Halkım Ölüyor, by Mertcan Karakush, a.k.a. Zakum Kök. I will link to both the English and the Turkish version in the show notes. And watch the documentary film The Shadow of the West uh, from 1983, written and narrated by Edward Said, directed by Geoff Dunlop. In this film, Said examines Western attitudes to the Arabs and finds their origins in the Crusades, Hollywood and European empire building. He sees the Palestinian fate as a result of years of Western interference. This film is one of the 10 episodes of The Arabs, A Living History, and is available to watch on YouTube, and I will also link to it in the show notes. And now the notebook pages. There's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. These are the words I saw printed in a newspaper I bought in May 2021 during a short stay in Zeeland by the North Sea. They are Zayat Khatab's words, uh, a resident of Gaza. I had also kept a photograph from that same article, and I pasted them both in my notebook next to a patterned paper based on the Great Wave of Kanagawa by Hokusai, which I had bought in a bookshop in Middleburg. And these, this notebook, this particular notebook, is called the Observer's Notebook, Weather. Uh, 
and because it's a it's originally a notebook created for people to observe the weather and that's it for this issue of the attention span i'm very thankful as usual for your presence and your attention and i will speak to you again in a couple of weeks bye